Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Jane Derealizer about her experiences with derealization disorder, PTSD, and managing energy as an introvert. Stay tuned at the end for a bonus song that I think is especially appropriate for the holidays. And thanks again to David Lauren, who helped me out with the transcript this week. It makes this whole process so much simpler to have help. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, so I kind of sent you my blurb. Do you have any other questions about what I'm up to? Does it make sense? It it makes so much sense that I'm like gobsmacked and delighted because... I was like, wow, I'm not the only person. Like, I love when you said your diagnosis is, is subject to, like, further discoveries. And I was like, uh-huh. Yep. I get it. I, I live in your world. Yeah. Like, I can say that about myself right now. But honestly, like, who on earth knows what will be true in, I don't know, even six months? I mean, I'm still getting tests done. But I'm sure if I go to another doctor, I'll hear a different thing. And that's just... It is what it is, right? Yeah. I mean, it's basically when the treatments or the um, definitions work, then that's great. And I try not – it's also like a weirdly Buddhist state. Like I was like, yeah, I everything I have lines up with derealization disorder. I could find out tomorrow I'm allergic to like seaweed and take vitamin Q and be cured and be like, oh, I guess maybe that, there were symptoms of derealization, but the cause was not what I – the story that I've written mm-hmm. up to this point based on facts. Yeah, it's weird. It's so weird. It's super weird. Yeah. Okay. So the way that I like to do it for the sake of the podcast sure. is by just asking uh, what health was like for you as a kid. So do you remember being a healthy kid? Do you remember being aware that something was different? Um, I was a healthy kid. I was, I don't know if you've ever seen the Woody Allen movie where the mother makes the son play chess in a football helmet. No. It's great. I think it's um, Brighton Beach Memoirs or no, that's uh, Neil Simon at Broadway something, Boardwalk something. So yeah, so totally healthy. But my mother would be like, why are you riding a bicycle? You could fall down and like break your leg. Why are you running? It was very hilarious. So um, definitely more of a book kid than a team sport kid which I was told was weird but you know uh, we didn't have the term introvert or highly sensitive person at that point but I was I am both was both Um, but no more of the fair share of misery that that would bring to a normal childhood Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah fair fair it doesn't doesn't always start there but I like to think about just how how our awareness of what might be normal can kind of start when we're a kid as we're benchmarking against other people Interesting. Yeah, no, I think um, give me a book and a tree and I'm good. <laughs> All unless, right, it's well, <laughs> unless it's hay season. Unless it's tree pollen season, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. So then when did you start to notice that something might be going on? What was the first thing that happened for you? This is, again – the way I've been able to piece it together, subject to revision when I have a different aha, but I went skiing in Taos with a friend of mine. She came in from LA. I came in from New York. 
We both went skiing in Taos for a weekend, nothing unusual. Both went home and got furiously ill. Um, her diagnosis was chronic fatigue, and she spent years in uh, with doctors and devastating you know, situations. Mine, I, I was at work in my ridiculously boring day job and was like, wow, this is like the worst flu I've ever had. Uh, I need to go home because if I don't get home in a couple hours, I'm not going to be able to move. And that was 1992. Mm. And, um, oh, hi, there you are. You're on my, my uh, Gmail. Um, that was 1992, and it's been sort of a search for answers ever since. So um, excruciating pain, couldn't lift my arms, couldn't lift up anything. Eventually had to go back to work because, you know, I needed to earn a living. Um, and the symptom that never left, which was the most terrifying, was this feeling of living in a dream. Like I woke up and I was like, oh, this is really scary and weird, but I'm sure if I get some rest, it'll go away. And here we are 26 years later going, wow, this is really weird stuff. Okay. So it sounds like it was definitely sudden onset and oh, yeah. probably there was some kind of cause, especially, especially if two of you got some kind of sick at once. Jeez. Yeah. This is what's, if you ever, if you've ever done any reading about chronic fatigue syndrome specifically uh -huh. um i know that they're like the diagnosis started as a kind of cluster diagnosis so a whole bunch of people got sick at once but it's not uh -huh. treated as a um communicable is the wrong word but it's not treated as a disease that we get externally basically wow um but when it first happened they brought in the cdc because it looked like an outbreak and it's like this is the thing that happens in outbreaks. What does that mean? Because we do, we no longer treat it that way. I mean, we don't really treat it at all. Right. No, so, it's more of a guilt thing. It's like, well, that's really your fault. Flawed right. human. Yeah. Person, it's like woman. a mental health problem exclusively, right. which right. of course they tie together, but. Ugh. Okay. So you both got sick together and it uh -huh. sounds like it's been more or less constant, but initially... So you said it felt like a flu mm -hmm. and then also, so there was kind of a physical sensation and then also a cognitive sensation. Does that sound? Yeah. And, and physical got better over time and cognitive remains, but I sort of feel like the pioneer in solving that part of the mystery, I, I think, which doesn't make it go away, but at least gives me the comfort of having some sort of narrative and uh, discovery that makes maybe make sense out of it. Mm -hmm. So then did you go to the doctor or at what point have you, did you start to interact with different practitioners or did you? Sorry not to laugh, but like if, if I had a Girl Scout badge with like every doctor on it, yeah. like my Girl Scout badge would be, um, yeah, so initially I went to the doctor and got a recommendation. Like my mother somehow, I guess I called, called her on a Sunday. I'm like, I'm really sick. Oh, she goes, oh, I have a friend who was a good doctor in New York. Da, da, da. Went to the doctor and you might relate to this, perhaps. Listeners might relate to this. So I went in and honestly described my symptoms and got the eye roll. And uh, the, the Mr. Doctor said, take some vitamin C. That usually fixes stuff like this. And if it doesn't, 
Well, I don't know, but maybe come back. <laughs> Great. Thank you for your commitment to helping me. Ooh, it's amazing. Yeah, and again, I know we only have an hour, so I won't give you the whole list, but I literally have been on the end of a, a vitamin C IV drip. I've done the coffee enema, which all of you coffee enema users out there, wow, um, that was wild. Um, I've done the naturopathic thing. I've done the energy healing thing. I've gone to the mainstream doctor and said, could this be allergies? I had a friend who is a doctor who I won't name because he'd probably get in trouble who ran me through his MRI machine on his lunch hour to see if it might be um, a structural brain sinus thing. So I've, I've sort of, um, what's that hilarious 70s song? I've been to paradise, but I've never been to me. So I've been to every doctor, but I've never found someone who mm -hmm. made any sense of this or helped really. And what stands out? So something that I think super resonates, of course, is the being dismissed, basically. So either not being believed or not being understood, first of all. Yep. Yep. Um, that feels like a, a really common theme. Um, and then I, I think we, my, in my experience of chronic illness, like it's so hard when we have a language that isn't built for it. So when you're trying to kind of map your own experience onto the language that we have, mm -hmm. have you ever, do you feel like that's something that you've ever done successfully? Or do you feel like that's, that's even a part of the battle that you're still fighting? Oh, I think it's absolutely a part of the battle because I was a comp lit major as an undergrad. And one of the lessons I remembered is that you can interpret a piece of literature to fit any structure that you bring to it. So back in undergrad, it would be like, you can interpret this as a Marxist. You can interpret this text as a feminist. You can, And what I realized when I was seeing these doctors is they were interpreting my story based on their own filter or their own study or how they define themselves that had absolutely nothing to do with me. And we weren't really going to reach any accommodation because they were imposing their diagnosis on my situation as opposed to trying to discover what uh, the truth might be. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So that was a good, a good laundry list of things that you've tried. Have you, or how does that map onto what has, worked at all or what you have found helpful maybe in ways you didn't expect and anything that you've tried that has made things worse kind of what's oh. the spectrum there for you <laughs> well let's see um boy um oh okay wow sorry i was just getting like the whole laundry list so there were the things that were crazy but benign and perhaps they weren't crazy they might have worked for other conditions but weren't helpful to me i.e the sort of um, food fasting thing um, and taking away every possible allergen, which I don't dispute. I think it could have been helpful if I had had a food allergy. Um, the coffee enema thing was certainly um, an experience that you can dine out on, I guess is the wrong expression, but it was certainly dramatic and weird. Didn't have any negative effect. The, the infusions of vitamin C IV drip were expensive and charlatanesque, I believe. So no harm, definitely financial damage and just creepy weirdness. Um, things that almost killed me include, um, at one point I developed uh, severe anxiety and insomnia, insomnia probably more from living in New York, but extreme anxiety from living with this condition 
and being so undiagnosed and the suffering that went with it and the constant denial and eventually was prescribed uh, anti-anxiety meds and sleep pills in doses I later found out would have probably been appropriate for like a 350 pound man. Oh, that was horrible. Um, And I had side effects to all of them. I'm the kind of person who, if I take a baby aspirin, I get side effects. So I had every side effect in the book that you could have imagined. And then um, when I just quit them cold turkey, got all the um, withdrawal symptoms, including, uh, which was so odd because they'll always say, you know, may lead to thoughts of suicide. And I had like the one thought, which fortunately was so bizarre that I just dismissed it. It was sort of like, you should throw yourself under a bus. And I was like, oh, I hate the bus. I'm not doing that. But I was like, man, this stuff, this stuff is really dangerous. And um, I feel fortunate to have escaped with only the awfulness that I dealt with. So that was definitely the worst. Um, What was really interesting to me is what finally diagnosed me was my own mind, which was the subject, like both the patient and turned out to be the doctor. Um, And I became very focused on writing this novel that was sort of a version of Cupid and Psyche with an invisible leading man character Mm -hmm. who I assumed was a a friend of mine who had died when we were in our 20s, my first boyfriend who I thought was coming back to to haunt me in some way, which I was getting sort of annoyed about, only to realize when I went to find an agent for the book, um, one of the agents I was looking at had uh, an author who wrote a book about depersonalization disorder. And I was doing my research and I went, now that sounds very similar to what I have. And that was the first opening I had to the research that let me figure out, at least that I believe that what I have is a derealization disorder. And so... So what was that like? So can you describe a little bit? I think you lost your headphones, right? Yeah, <laughs> can, there you go. Yeah, there yeah. Go. Oh, can you describe a little bit? So what did you, your first, so that first research into, you said depersonalization disorder. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about there? And then what was it like? What were you seeing reflected? So the person who wrote the book on depersonalization disorder was talking about this feeling of um, what I experience is there's almost like a screen between my eyes and the world. It's very physical. It's like having a, a veil drop down or like um, a weird uh, window shade where you're just like, if someone would just pull this thing up, I could reconnect and feel really uh, the way I used to. And he was describing the symptoms of depersonalization disorder, which is somewhat different, but in a very similar way about that you're perfectly present. There are no delusions. You're not having any um, dissociation in the sense of not understanding what's real, your emotions are totally in line. But with depersonalization disorder, I think people, they lose their connection to themselves. So they can't identify their own emotions, but they know exactly what's going on. And I was like, you know, not exactly what I have, but certainly the closest thing. Wow. Despite what I've been hearing and what I knew to be true myself, this is real. This thing is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of hoping for more connection with the book and the author and a community. And I didn't feel that, but at least it was like, you know, going from a, a population of one to a population that has some relatives in the world. Yeah. And that must be really validating. I know just in my own physical experiences, when I read somebody else describe something related, you're like, oh, thank God, because there's a big part of me for me that's just thinking maybe I am either misremembering my own experiences or maybe everybody feels like this and nobody's talking about it or maybe mm. like there's so many you you can come up with so many explanations just to try 
and make the world make sense again when it stops making sense, basically. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also to your point, to me, there always felt like an undercurrent of you're, you're faking, you're making this up, you're oversensitive, you know, normal people wouldn't have a problem. I would sort of know over the years, I don't know if you've tried this, but I try to put out feelers with people and be like, yeah, I'm really um, uh, dealing with this pretty terrible thing, blah, 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 blah. And there's just the immediate, either the eye glaze or the shutdown of like, mm, I don't know what this is. You're scaring me or I, I don't know, you know, or I don't believe, I don't fully give credence to your experience. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes. I don't have context to understand what you're saying. Yes. So it's not landing. However, it's not landing. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting. I don't know if you've been following, I guess there was a book that just came out about endometriosis and the false diagnosis of women with endometriosis and the things that they had been told. And uh, there was a big thread on Twitter where the author just said, can anybody relate to going to the doctor and having your diagnosis dismissed only to find out it was real? And I think she got so many hundreds of thousands of responses that it was like, this is a big issue. It's a really big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not, it's almost because we don't have the words to uh, make people understand it. People don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know it, but I will absolutely look that up because that sounds like it's right up my alley. But oh, yeah. there's a commercial on TV right now where I live at least for, and it's, I don't know if it's from an advocacy group or like a fake advocacy group that's really a drug company. But anyway, it's about endo. And it's this woman sitting on the the bench at the doctor's office and the doctor's asking her about it. Like, how's your endometriosis? And she goes, oh, it's fine. And then there's kind of a second version of her, which is, you know, like her, I don't know, her brain or something saying, you've got to tell them that actually it's very painful. And the message of this ad is that the reason that women aren't getting treated for their endometriosis pain is that they're not speaking up. And I'm just like, that is not the problem. I'm sure that there are people who are not comfortable talking about this, but I hear way more stories from people who go in and they outline exactly how they feel and they put their pain at, like at a 10 on the pain scale and the doctor doesn't care. That's so much more common. And so this ad is insulting to me. I just saw it last night and I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> um, it blew me away. Um, it was like, I refuse to call the patient the victim, but just to use the expression, blame the victim, mm-hmm. uh, blame the patient. Um, where I looked at that situation, like, first of all, I wouldn't see this dude um, as a doctor if you paid me. Second of all, yeah, none of this. It almost made me wonder if the book that had come out, I was like, oh my gosh, is she part of this conspiracy too? Um, yeah, it was terrible. It was really terrible. I, I, I caught it. It's bad. And I think it's a drug company. I think they're basically saying, you know, don't sue the doctor. You can't sue the doctor. It's really on you. Yeah. it's. I forget what the kind of name was that pops up at the end, but I'm, I suspect it's like a, a front for something else. But it's, it's rough and it's exactly oh, yeah. that thing. So when you find out that your experience is actually real, I'll even call it, <laughs> yeah. it's such a... a change um okay so so you read this book yep and you kind of a light bulb went off yep and then did you take that to anybody did you what did your further research like any you know what happens next 
Well, so what's, what was especially challenging for me is that my situation started pre-internet. So if that had happened today, obviously I would be Googling the heck out of all these terms. And But at this point we're in, we're definitely in the internet age, but we're not in the like, you know, Google your dreams kind of situation. So I managed to find a psychologist mentioned in the uh, end notes of the book who specialized in depersonalization disorder and da 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 da. So I called her and became a patient. And I sort of thought, finally, I'm, and she's a woman and I have all my positive prejudices against that. And I showed up and I was ready to be like, oh my God, this I, I'm so glad you found me. This must've been so rough for you. We're gonna work on this together. And it was sort of like, okay, we have 40 minutes. What do you wanna talk about? Yeah. And I was like, and then when I would start to say, this is really distressing, she would be like, you know what? We could maybe get you a prescription for an anti-anxiety drug. And I was like, did you not hear this whole story that I just spoke about, about being, you know, and interestingly, that psychologist's office was in the same building as the male doctor who overprescribed me all the meds. So I was like, I'm sort of back in this paradigm again, just on a different floor. Like, mm -hmm. I, that's the only thing that's improved. Um, this is the so anxiety medication place. Right. What's that? This is the anxiety medication place. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, again, and it, I don't know if you can relate to this, but what was comforting to me were the weirdest things like, oh, it's in Soho. Soho's like full of artists and cool. So therefore, I will find my doctor here and my cure as opposed to on the Upper East Side where they, they hooked me up to an IV drip of vitamin C, which was crazy and kind of uh, step for wifey. But yeah, it, it's eventually I've sort of come to the belief that I know more about this condition probably than any professional that I can see, although I don't rule out the chance of finding my dream medical partner and having them know more than I do and helping me work through the end of this. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so you saw that therapist and it was just, I... I love this idea that treating your distress around it would be the solution. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I noticed that you seem really upset by this major change in your life experience. <laughs> would you like it if you could be less upset? <laughs> yeah, can we just numb you out? And then, yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. And again, it's that weird thing of I'm um, the problem. Like, it's your reaction. Like, someone who is nicer or a better person would just suffer in silence and walk through their life going, well, my whole cognitive structure seems to have been altered by either something viral or trauma, which is what I've come to believe. Although again, don't know, uh, but it works as a, as a diagnosis. Yeah. It was just, and she was super nice, really nice lady. Um, but in the end, just not know. helpful. No. And then it's true that just the internet has changed so much, which I think can be good and bad. <laughs> yeah. But I'd like in terms of resources and stuff. So did after seeing that person, which was not super helpful, where did your own research take you? Were there other books that you found or were you kind of in a, a waiting area until the internet picked up? What did that look like? Um, well, it, at this point, I moved to Colorado. I was living in Brooklyn. I'd been in New York City for a really long time. And um, I'd also managed to add on to this happy <laughs> symphony of, of this syndrome that I had 
um, some acute PTSD because there's nothing more fun to add to some derealization, you know, like a chronic illness than just a hit of like a really acute illness that can really rock your world. So um, I moved to Colorado, which was great and in many ways a lifesaver, but I was also dealing with um, trying to manage PTSD, trying to manage derealization disorder, and then ended up with pneumonia. So I was like, wow, okay, I'm kind of busy here. I don't have a lot of time for research. Um, I'm self-employed. This is really about survival, and I'm also one of the things I am as a voiceover artist. So when the pneumonia hit, it really, everything became a challenge. So uh, I was seeing a therapist here, again, super nice, and I was really excited because she was a Buddhist. So I was like, again, projection. I'm just like, ah, okay, the Buddhist is going to have the quiet space in her soul to hear what I'm saying and help me work through this together. And again, super nice person, but that didn't really happen. So research put on hold for quite a while. Um, but I continued to work with this novel, uh, which I had brought with me. And it kind of kept saying to me, uh, you know, listen, this invisible person that you're writing about that you think is, you know, somebody else, you really need to look at this and you need to consider this, this trauma is something very real and uh, stand your ground and really respect yourself and become sort of the David Copperfield, the sort of main character, the hero of your own story. And at that point, I, I started taking things apart one by one. I found someone who was a really great um, uh, a naturopath, um, worked on some uh, EMDR and some um, EFT. So looking at things that didn't necessarily my rational brain would embrace normally, but tapping and breathing. And I was also doing yoga and running. And so it's sort of one by one, I moved the pieces out, sort of took the PTSD piece out, moved that aside. Um, still working with the respiratory stuff, but mostly have that fixed. And then with the derealization disorder, um, sort of came to the place where I was like, yeah, I have it. And, um, so yeah, by that, by this time I was able to start looking things up and, mm -hmm. um, sort of found out that my symptoms match a term, but not, there's no cure information. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you had a term and did you look for other people? Is that something that has been appealing to you? As an introvert, um, <laughs> who spent her life not knowing that you could be like a proud introvert and stand your ground. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really a group person. Like the idea of sitting in a room with 25 people with derealization disorder is kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I, although it'd be kind of comical because everyone would be like, I mean, it'd just be so weird. But um, so that wasn't really an exciting option for me. I'd found some groups online and mm -hmm. I, again, I was sort of like, that's not really my bag. Although I would hope if this interview could be helpful to someone, like I would love that way of sharing positive information. So no. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I found some interesting facts like Freud supposedly experienced depersonalization disorder in a flashing moment uh, before the Acropolis, before the grandeur of the Acropolis. It was such an overwhelming uh, stimulus that he felt, you know, completely disconnected from his normal self and like in this sort of dreamy state. So I'm like, okay, well, there's some, some popular, some cool kids have had something related <laughs> to this. That's always nice to have <laughs> um, company. But the idea of finding a group hasn't really been something that I was drawn to. 
Mm-hmm. I know I don't, I also don't, I mean, I love talking to people like this. I have sought this out, but what I really hunger for, I love personal essays and memoirs. And I just, there are some, and maybe there are more coming out that are, I don't even, it's not about any specific condition, but just about the experience of kind of having to strike a new piece with your body outside of what medicine can handle. And I just really, I hunger for those stories as a way to connect with people. So not so much, not so much sitting in a support group, whatever that might look like, but just it's the validation and that language building. It's like every time any of us talks about this, about whatever it is among different conditions, but we're kind of building a language together for trying to describe it. And I think that's, I think that's the good thing about the internet. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I will say in my little Instagram account, um, I am tagging myself as both an introvert and an HSP. And I do love, and again, I think this is a very introvert way of connecting and moving through information. I do love finding these little posts or these little things like, oh, I'm actually not alone. Because I I don't know if you experience it, but the loneliness of this kind of uh, challenge is really one of the most stressful and sad, like, you know, parts of it. It's just like, you know, trying to do your best, trying to be your best, trying to use your brain to figure it out, trying to be a good girl. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, feeling completely isolated, not to mention disbelieved. So that's comforting. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I definitely relate to that. And I also, I feel like there's a little bit, in my experience, of the people around me who one of the reasons that it feels alone is that the people around me are waiting for me to get better. Yeah. And yes, so they're like, oh, I don't really get what's going on right now. But when you go back to your regular self, we'll just pick up where we left off. And I don't think I'm not saying that with malice kind of on, in my interpretation or in their actions. But I think when somebody just doesn't know what an experience is like, there's a huge, and it's not represented in media at all. There's just this really big empathy gap that makes it so difficult for people to imagine. And so that can be incredibly isolating. Yeah. And I, I agree. And it's also the invisible, uh, I don't know, disability, invisible challenge um, scenario is that because it can't be seen, like if you went and your leg was broken in three places and you showed up to your friend's softball game, they wouldn't be like, well, come on, just, you know, tough it out and run the bases. You'll be like, they'd be amazingly compassionate. Also because um, in journalism, there's a term, the newsless who, where the closer a story is to home and represents a person more like you, the easier it is for the reader to empathize, to your point. And the further away it is from most people's experience, the harder it is for most people to relate because they can't put themselves in that scenario and it's not a selfish thing it's just a human like I don't get it I don't know what this feels like I don't know what the challenge is you look fine Mm -hmm. you look marvelous darling Mm -hmm. so what's your problem kind of thing right yeah yeah definitely definitely okay so then then what I wonder about so it sounds like while you have seen many doctors they have not really been influential in this process or maybe not in a good way which is totally understandable but I'm just thinking through the things I want to make sure that I cover sure um so what have you found in addition to all the maybe wacky things that you've tried what is working for you right now how are you managing or 
out there in the world or not out there, but at home? So my whole upbringing, going back to, you know, being a kid and being told you should go outside when you want to be reading a book or, you know, hang out with a bunch of people when you want to be maybe with one person is that, um, was the fundamental lesson of anything that feels naturally right to you is wrong. So I was trying to tough this thing out, you know, first living in New York City, uh, going to a bunch of auditions a day, having a big social life. When I moved out to Colorado, I started standing up for my right to be quiet. Um, and I mean that sort of in the Susan Cain, you know, quiet book sense mm -hmm. of the word where it's like, you know what, I am going to work at home. I am going to work on the projects that I can pour my heart and abilities into and I'm not going to do the things that deplete me um, and I will be okay with that. So um, goodbye to FOMO, goodbye to should, you know, if only I was out doing this thing I hated, maybe I could book a gig with somebody. Like, so that has been the most uh, liberating thing for me. And yeah, I definitely am. I work from home. Um, I watch a lot of Netflix. I read a lot of books. Um, there was a point where when the PTSD thing was happening, I couldn't focus. So I'm so grateful to be able to pick up a book and focus for an hour. But it really is. It's like being sort of um, zealously quiet and not really caring who thinks that means I'm a loser. Or, yeah. You know, not, not being as fun as I should be, not being as entertaining. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah, I I hear that and I have heard, I think, versions of that as I talk to people about what it looks like to manage whatever the condition is of like, and there's some reframing, which I think is what you're describing of going, okay, at first it sometimes feels like I'm making myself smaller, I'm making my life smaller. Um, and that is really hard. That's a really difficult thing. And there's grief in there. And then at some point you kind of hopefully get to turn that around and go, okay, but what do I really care about and how do I get to just include that so that my life is about making room for the things that I really care about, hopefully. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I just did um, a little concert. So I'm a singer, songwriter, performer, person. And I've been saying to people, you know, that the assumption when you're a performer is that, you know, you want the largest possible audience is the me is that that's the measure of your success or or the ability of your art to connect with an audience. And I started saying, you know what, I perform for really tiny audiences and we have a wonderfully kind and um, fun connection. And I call them jewel box audiences. I say like each person's a gem. And I went and did this little show. It was a 40 minute show in a yoga studio at 12, 15 in the afternoon on a Sunday. So we're talking, right? So we're not, you know, um, the environment was delightful. You know, you, you have chemical sensitivities. Is that right? You're sensitive to mold? Yeah, the, including I have tick-borne illness and then I have, um, I was really sick with mold exposure. Ugh. So this, you can imagine, this place is like impeccable. It's like wood, but it has not one like chemical trigger in it. So the space is very calm and beautiful and Zen and clean. Mm -hmm. um, people were just, you know, moms and their kids. It just happened to be whoever was going to be there and an older friend of mine. And 
uh, about 10 people sitting on, you know, little cushions and the art on the floor, like everything. It was nothing about it was like, let's make this as big and fabulous. And it was, I got the feedback that people were elated. They were like, we smiled through the whole thing. We all felt better and they felt seen. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also the thing is that as someone who's felt pretty invisible, I'm now being like, no, this is the things are the things I stand up for. And come on, kind people, we're going to rock it uh, in this really quiet way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds lovely. I think there's definitely something to be said for intimacy, basically, and mm -hmm. the time that you that you can choose to spend with people. Um, so as you've learned to, I'll say manage your energy, but I know that's that maybe isn't quite the right the quite way to phrase quite the right mm, way to phrase it's good. it I had a it's lot of good. trouble with that sentence yeah no it's great it's actually great manage your energy is a great term so as you've been as you've navigated that do you uh, I know so much less about your condition of course and so is it something that that fluctuates like are you if if you overextend yourself do you things are exacerbated mm -hmm. yeah and What's interesting to me is, again, I mean, we're all a composite, right? So we're not an illness. We're people who have multivalent things going on. So what I've learned is as an introvert and performer, which is an interesting combination and not an unusual one, um, after I'm done, like I put my whole heart out there and then the batteries are exhausted. It's time to go and re recharge. And that literally for me looks like sitting on the couch, watching the Great British Baking Show, for like maybe six hours, maybe getting off the couch to like get a leftover of Tupperware and like, you know, Tupperware of leftovers and really like down to nothing. Um, and that um, prevents like waking up the next day feeling completely uh, derealized. Like if I get overtired, mm -hmm. um, the sensation in my eyes or also the top of my head really gets exacerbated, but it also gets exacerbated from lack of sleep and it also gets exacerbated by allergy season. So it's hard to know which factors it like, is it a little tree pollen? Is that exacerbating it? Or is it just pile on? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's interesting talking about the introvert thing, because of course everybody experiences that spectrum differently too, I'm sure. But going, well, maybe, even if this had never happened, I probably just would be the type of person who needs to rest after socializing. And that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything medical. Right. But as it plays into this other thing of, yeah, of getting exhausted easier and having that be an issue. So you feel more, I'm doing a hand gesture, which won't translate. I can but, see, no, I can see you. We'll, we'll both, we're gesturing. Yeah. So you feel more... Is detached a good word to explain it? Not really. Um, I think that might be more the depersonalization side of things. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be more connected. Mm -hmm. It's just literally like if I, if I could get a window washer for my corneas. Yeah. It's literally just that. It's as though you're like, man, what? If there's like one millimeter of a layer between me and the experience of the outside world. Completely know it's there. Mm -hmm. Completely no no questions um and i'm not detached i'm completely connected and that's what's so odd about the whole thing mm -hmm. is that um like your perception yeah is impacted yeah yeah and and then that fluctuates 
Now yeah. I'm gesturing more. <laughs> That's okay. But no, it's your figure doing the thing like in front of your eyes. And it, yeah. it's literally, yeah, it, it, I was like, I wish it was eyeglasses, but it's not eyeglasses. I wish it was um, a decongestant. Like maybe I, is my head congested? It's not, but it's that feeling. It's just like, and it's not, I, I've heard the term foggy thinking, which I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I'm not a foggy thinker. I'm an yeah. absolutely. It does not resonate with you. I have been a foggy thinker and it is literally just like I can't speak like I'm not able to make good sentences because the words are missing kind of wow so yeah it definitely is something that I felt more in my brain compared to in that at that eye layer where it's translating so yeah and then is there I mean I guess that must be that is physical but is that also a physical kind of sensation it is a very physical sensation. I mean, as unusual as it might be, um, it's not having been through the glories of PTSD, like PTSD was like physical and emotional, right? Because I'd be like, uh, my body would be acting like the house was on fire and I'd be sitting at the library and something stressful would have happened. That to me was a, a physical and emotional combination. This mm-hmm. is quite physical. and. While it occasionally, or especially at the beginning, would have an emotional component because it would be scaring the hell out of me mm-hmm. or making me super sad. Mm-hmm. Now it's just kind of like, all right, um, it's not impacting my energy level because I've seemed to have worked through whatever that mystery Taos thing was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is exhausting because it's just like, oh, come on, really? You know, today's not the day where it all gets back to normal. It's kind of exhausting and depressing to some degree. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. So, so that's now. So it's like, it Mm -hmm. sounds like you're at some level of acceptance, but at the same time, there's a weight to that, which makes sense to me. Um, And what do you have theories? It sounds like yes, because I feel like they've dropped in a little bit, but given that you have not had anybody be able to give you a good (laughs) explanation, what do you think is going on? Well, the reading I've done says that these conditions, which I definitely experienced, you would experience them for like a day or so, and then they would go away over the course of your life, which would definitely happen to me when I was either sick or ill or whatever. But what I noticed, and again, how much of this story I've just constructed because it makes sense, although it makes sense, so I'll stick with it, is that I had gone through a series of traumas um, first with the person who I was closest to dying at the age of 20. And technically we'd broken up, so we weren't exactly boyfriend and girlfriend, but we were confidants, best friends. He was the person who really saw me to Mm -hmm. bring up this metaphor again. And um, when he died, I was traveling. When I came back, no one, again, wanted to deal with it. I was like, I am in grief. I am, my heart is broken. I am just, I lost the most meaningful person. Everyone was like, yeah, well, that was three months ago here. So, um, yeah and we also don't know how to deal with you so we're going to ignore that um and the next friend i made was someone who died of aids in 1987 again when i was traveling um came back and people were like yeah again you sort of are out of sync with everybody Mm -hmm. um so i had these series of sort of um really traumatic grief experiences that i had no place to put And I think when the third one happened, as on all good stories, it's like the law of threes, um, 
being a highly sensitive person and again wanting to have I think have fixed all this which I don't think I really could have saved any of these people I think my my emotional system just said all right listen this is a little bit overwhelming this is too much for you to handle we're going to shut down the curtain on uh, the amount of pain you're experiencing mm -hmm. that's my working theory how it jives with the sort of chronic fatigue thing I don't really know maybe it you're more susceptible to when your immune system's down. Um, yeah, but, is it an interesting question of with your friend getting sick, like was there a trigger that got you both sick? And then for you that being sick led to something else or did the trigger cause both? Or I, I mean, I can imagine spending a lot of time thinking about that and trying to come up with new theories. Yeah, and there's the moment of talking to my friend and she's going, and I have this symptom. I'm like, me too. And this, me too. And this, and you know, me too. And I go, and this. And she goes, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're like, but, but, but we're like illness buddies. Like you're my BF illness F. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so that's the theory um, I've come up with. Um, mm -hmm. it's, is it true? You know, I don't know, but it, it, it seems to be one possible explanation of why um, this hit so hard. There was just so much grief and so much aloneness and so much um, inability to stand up and go, hell yeah, this is what I feel. And it makes total sense. And you guys suck for not being more supportive. But that wasn't in my vocabulary at the time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think grief, especially the first few times, maybe we'll say, or maybe it's always that you experience it. It has a lot in common with chronic illness that there isn't a good language for it because, I mean, there's the word grief and then there's kind of sad, but sad isn't right or like loss. It just, the way that people map it onto their own experiences doesn't make them equipped to support you if they are not equipped to support you. Yeah, and I think that, and I heard it over and over again with people, you know, I would break down crying and people would just walk away. They'd be like, you know, someone once surprised me with the um, the roommate of my uh, deceased boyfriend at a party. They thought it would be hilarious to just have him pop up out of nowhere eight years later and say, and I completely fell apart. I hadn't seen this person. And they were like, God, why are you taking, like, we didn't think you'd take it that. I was like, like, wow, this is a kind of heartless world that I'm in. And again, it, again, it's being re rendered invisible right you're like i'm in extreme pain and people are like well that's wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah and i'm trying to think of what else is on my my list of things to sure. cover um it was about taking your health i mean you kind of listed your experiments but it sounded like for, on the experiments or things you might read about in books or on the internet you didn't find anything actively helpful which is fine but I'm just trying to remember because I'm, I'm so interested in that because people do find I mean you talked about coffee enemas and <laughs> I read this book called Through the Shadowlands mm -hmm. which is about chronic fatigue syndrome and also about mold illness and I think I might talk about it a lot but I, re I really enjoyed it but she started doing coffee enemas and when she started doing them she was like this is totally nuts. I am embarrassed. Like, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm doing this. Um, and in her case, she ended up finding it really helpful. And I think it's a part of her daily routine now. Wow. I mean, it's like whatever works. I mean, that's the other thing is that 
you know, it's kind of like, why does it work? You know, what does it work? It doesn't really matter. Mm -mm. It works. Um, one thing, getting back to the, the endo uh, ad that you saw, is that I'm pretty convinced that whatever is the root of my condition or my baby cure is not going to make anybody a lot of money. Right. And so I think that exponentially reduces my chance of stumbling across a medical professional who has a passionate interest or solution for my situation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's become clear to me uh, for sure. I mean, I definitely, I eat healthy. I get a lot of rest. I run, I do yoga. I, you know, stay away from whatever. But so, you know, I think a lot of these cures, they're not really a cure maybe for some of these chronic conditions as much as a lifestyle. And yes. uh, I hope, that, you know, that you put all the pieces together like in a puzzle and, and figure it out, but it may not be, you know. Yeah. There's a high degree of personalization. And I think about that a lot with stuff, even just like dietary interventions, which some people find so helpful. And I do too. I mean, I've like, it's not everything by any means, but the way that I eat really impacts how I feel and my energy levels and I get like my skin condition. And, um, and it's, it's bonkers to me that there isn't even really a good explanation, like in the kind of traditional medical community, even dietary interventions still seem like a fringe idea. Wow. And crazy. Yeah. I think it depends who you see, but yeah. it's like, this won't, this won't ever be researched properly, at least not in our current system, because there isn't funding for it because nobody's going to make money off of it. Right. And so there are small scale studies and there is the field of nutrition, but it is so influenced by corporate interests that it doesn't really, it's not about health outcomes, really. Yeah. I mean, I actually connected my boyfriend with a nutritionist um, and he was just having generic, he had a sinus infection and, um, and I sent him to her and I do the cooking in our house. So I was like, I'm always up for a good, healthy diet plan. Um, and that actually helped me cure just incredible dizziness that I always had, which made derealization a lot worse. And this nutritionist is an independent practitioner and we're out in, you know, near Boulder, Colorado, which is definitely a health centered part of the country. Um, so there is that for sure that eating healthier, I think just makes us healthier and, makes you maybe better able to deal with certain symptoms. I don't know if it cures them, but I'm all about that. And I, I do agree. I think, you know, where, where corporate interests don't intersect with these situations, there's not just not going to be a lot of interest. And I will go back to the woman piece of it too. I just think that that's already strike one walking into a doctor's office. I'm a woman and, oh, um, I had a really interesting experience where and I was dealing with the post pneumonia stuff and I really was having trouble breathing, went to see a doctor and I said, I'm really having some respiratory issues. And he said, you need to get a mammogram. My mother died of breast cancer at age 40. What? Right. Right. Yeah. That's and I was like, bizarre. Yeah. But that's, that's a lot of the truth of this. And again, you know, that was his answer and that supports the mammogram center and uh, nothing against mammograms. I think they're awesome, but it has nothing to do with your lungs as far as I know, asthma or, you know. Right. It's that part. I mean, I've I have not had that specific experience, but even when I've been recommended medication that had nothing to do with what I went in for, 
I mean, when I was really sick with mold illness before I knew it was mold illness and I had this, like, I have bad skin pain. And eventually my primary care physician was like, well, if it gets worse, we can always put you on um, fibromyalgia medication, which is, which is, would be antidepressants. I'm like, I don't, I'm not taking antidepressants because my skin hurts. That's, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense to me. Like it would be one thing if I had come in because I was depressed and I didn't know why and everything else seemed to be working and I wanted something to help with my kind of mental health baseline, but that wasn't the situation. So what? But yeah, there's really, there's really something there with doctors. Yeah, so anyway, that's yeah, that's the that's the view from the Colorado Derealization Disorder Society. I don't know if it's a disorder; it's a it's a thing. <laughs> they call it they call it a disorder. I feel pretty well ordered, but um, I would love to figure this out someday, and you know, yeah, get get it to move on. But. Yeah, of course. And is there anything else? I think I think we've covered all my stuff. Is there anything else that has kind of pinged for you while we've been talking that? That occurs to you to share? Yeah. I mean, I guess the one thing which is I'm just very grateful to you is because I feel like there are, but I don't know what the number is, thousands, millions of these stories of these of us. Like we're actually an awesome community of people who, who are all uh, working with individual things. But I think getting the word out and telling people that they're they're not alone Mm-hmm. And that you're the clearinghouse for this, I just think is terrific. Thank you. Right. And and yeah, I'm trying to stay focused on that going. The audience for this is people experiencing chronic health concerns, diagnosed or undiagnosed. I'm not, there's plenty of work to be done around like outward facing stuff. But I think to start with like just connecting with people because there's so much on the internet that isn't helpful. And I don't, I don't want to be a health guide. I don't care about that. I don't care if anyone has unscientific explanations or weird treatments. I just want to say like, here's what people are really doing and here's how people are really living with whatever they are living with. I have a yoga teacher who was um, a Marine Mm. and he said something that, and again, it might be one of these things that other people will be like, I've heard that. I had never heard this. And he just said, everybody has something everybody is dealing with something Mm -hmm. you know and again when it's invisible when it's invisible obviously we don't see it and i think when it's invisible we don't see other people are more like us than we would know yeah so it's you know yeah because you could pass somebody experiencing the exact same thing and you'd have no idea exactly we need to wear t-shirts it needs to be like color war in camp we're like wearing the peony is that what they're called pennies in uh, mm-hmm. elementary school sports. Yeah, we definitely need to. <laughs> I don't know what color derealization would be. Maybe be like. Yeah, you can make a flag for yourself, though, as a side project. <laughs> Good. I need something to do. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little extra diversion. It's sure, fine. Sure, because we're not busy. But um, yeah, so thank you so much for this. I'm really excited about the project, and it's just great. Even hearing a little bit about your story and reading your description, I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Sure. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of No End in Sight. Instead of my usual outro spiel, this episode is brought to you by Smile Songs, where you can buy art that sings. Check them out at smilesongs.com and enjoy this little ditty, You're Sick, It Sucks, which I think many of you will relate to. Thanks for listening. 
one, two, three. You're sick, it sucks. The world should treat you better. If you're hot, here's a breeze. If you're cold, a psychic sweater. And lots and lots of love from this little singing letter. You're sick, it sucks. The world should treat you better. Everybody. You're sick, it sucks. Hey, how is the food there? And if you're making all your food, well, props to your self-care. And if you're craving pizza, let us know and we will send it there. You're sick, it sucks. Hey, how is the food there? Oh, it's not fair. How up comes trending down. It's not fair How well done becomes rare Oh, it's not fair How white coats like to push and prod And shake their heads And maybe not Well, we're on your side Front and back of this, we're on your team We're gonna cheer you on from this And if you'd like to scream, oh yeah We'll scream with you through this It's so wrong Sing along sick it sucks the world should treat you better if you're hot here's a breeze if you're cold a psychic sweater sending you our love in this little singing letter to your every cell major organ microbiome through every test until you're happy healthy home up with immunity down with pus lots of love to you from us